Malik Henfield could have been any kid in any American high school, floating by on his academics, getting into some trouble here and there with teenage drinking, skipping school, raised at times by his grandmother and at times by a mother who was addicted to drugs. He moved four times between eighth and 12th grade. He was raised in the 1980s in Brooklyn, New York, during the crack cocaine explosion. My family was not immune, uh, so much so that pretty much all of the relatives I had in my mother's generation were addicted to some sort of drug, be it crack cocaine or alcohol. And in my mother's case, uh, it was those two drugs of choice um, from a very early age. Um, so things were tough. From all outward appearances, Henfield was not college material. He didn't even know that school counselors existed, let alone that they were tasked with helping him get into college. Henfield had never heard of the SAT. After graduating from his Aiken, South Carolina high school with a 1.7 GPA, the young black man got the job he seemed destined for, emptying trash cans at a nuclear power plant. So how did it come to pass that Henfield graduated with a PhD in counselor education from The Ohio State University, landed millions in research grants, became a dean of an education school, and now is spearheading a cutting-edge institute on racial equity at Loyola University. With few exceptions, teachers and administrators missed the hidden aptitude within Malik Henfield. But here's the thing that Henfield has been uncovering ever since he found his purpose in education. He was not alone. Hundreds of thousands of underrepresented, intellectually gifted kids, black kids, Latinx kids, poor white kids, children like he was, are out there still, languishing. This is the Inspire Podcast, a production of Ohio State University's College of Education and Human Ecology. I'm Robin Chenoweth. Carol Del Grosso is our audio engineer. Some might say that Professor Malik Henfield, who graduated with a PhD from Ohio State in 2006, had everything going against him as a child. But Henfield has come to understand that that isn't exactly true. His father died at 20 in a car accident while on leave from the Marines. Henfield was just three months old, and his mother became a widow at the age of 20. My mom was expecting some support from the military as a function of my father's death, but they denied it because, from what I hear, he was returning home for vacation or something like that. So to them, he didn't qualify. His mother fought the decision hard. Then to cope, she began to experiment with drugs. And it got progressively worse given the situation that she was in. That was her coping style. And I understand in a lot of ways, why she did what she did, but that doesn't make it any less difficult. I'm wondering what some of your earliest memories might have been. I don't want to paint it as gloom and doom. There was a lot of joy in the house. We listened to her music, I'll say, on the weekends, and there was usually a lot of people around. so that was fun because I was an only child for many years. But on the downside, she struggled to find work a lot of times, which meant that sometimes we had food, sometimes we didn't. 
Penfield's grandmother lived next door. His mother was fiercely independent and didn't want her own mom to interfere with her parenting. My grandmother wanted to be involved more than she was, but wasn't allowed to do so. So I snuck over there a lot of times. When my mom wasn't home, I would sneak to my grandmother's house and get something to eat or just get some peace and quiet sometimes. Yes, I did enjoy the fact that we had a house full of people a lot of the time, but it would start off during the day as clean, wholesome fun. And then at night, you'd have a house full of people using drugs. I recall very clearly going into the basement and seeing the red lights and um, looking around the room and seeing a lot of adults, many of them my relatives, using drugs right there. People in and out, drug dealers coming in and drug dealers coming out. I, that was not uncommon in my house. You thought it was normal? Yeah, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. It was normal for us uh, as a family because my, my cousins were not immune. So we, we would talk about it a little bit, but not much. My grandmother was the chief driver behind me enrolling in a um, Seventh-day Adventist uh uh, private school, um, all black, uh, predominantly West Indian school in Brooklyn there. Um, and it wasn't until that experience that I realized that not all adults are on drugs. I, I just thought that that's what adults did, at least at least my mom's generation, maybe not you know my grandmother and, and her generation, but that's just how I view adults. That Seventh-day Adventist school that his grandmother got into by attending their church services in addition to her own? It was a game changer for Henfield. The teachers all looked like him. They knew the students' names, not just the ones in their own class. They collaborated on their instruction. They had very high expectations of their students. Regardless of where we came from, who our parents were, none of that mattered. Those teachers cared and we felt it. Each one of us felt it. A lot of the kids in my neighborhood who went to the public school, uh, many of them just didn't do well, or many of them uh, later on in life told stories of trauma, although it wasn't characterized as that at the time. But in hindsight, many of them were traumatized based on their experience in under-resourced schools. They were traumatized inside the school? And outside the school just got to think about the context that we were in. The, the 80s in Brooklyn was not the Brooklyn of today, right? Relative to today, we're talking about uh, murder rates that are two, three times that of today. Going to school was traumatizing, not knowing if you were going to get robbed or if the police were going to rough you up for no reason. It, it just was a traumatic experience. But within that trauma, there was still a lot of joy. And that's the thing that I haven't forgotten is that we're a resilient people and we've learned over time to make the best of horrible situations. And in a lot of ways, my background was horrible, but I also enjoyed the experience for a number of reasons as well. So Malik Henfield attended his miracle school leaning into his grandmother, who knew the value of education. He was doing well, given his circumstances, headed for Brooklyn Tech, a reputable STEM high school. 
And then his mom made a decision. She wanted to get out of Brooklyn to break her addiction. My mom and my grandmother made the decision that she needed to leave. And when she left, I stayed behind. But over time, the decision was made that I should be with her. Malik landed with his mother in Charleston, South Carolina. Before long, his mom fell back into her addiction. Without his grandmother and his support system, he was lost. And I, I remember feeling so out of place in Charleston at that time. And I just didn't like it. I, I just, there was no one there like me. The school was bigger than anything I was accustomed to. I didn't have any black teachers, at least I, I don't recall having any black teachers. It was just very different from my New York experience. I was placed in courses that were not challenging in any way. I remember being in math and students asking me for answers that were based on problems I'd taken way back in fifth grade. It was just a, a really difficult experience. and I just didn't understand why I was there. I just didn't get it at all. And there was no one advocating at the time. And so over time, he started to slack. He made some bad choices, got into a lot of trouble. After two years, his grandmother moved to Aiken, South Carolina, two hours away, and took him with her. But Henfield seemed stuck in a rut. The luster had worn off any aspirations he had in Brooklyn. His teachers and school counselors never picked up on the fact that he was gifted, bored, and unfulfilled. He skirted past the assessments and fell into the mediocrity the adults in his world seemed to expect of him. He never considered going to college, never walked into a school counselor's office, and before long, he was a teenage father himself, just like his own dad. He took that job emptying trash cans and cleaning bathrooms. You might be asking yourself, how often does this happen in the United States? Surely, in 2021, gifted kids like Malik Henfield are being identified in schools. Ohio State's distinguished professor, Donna Ford, who studies underrepresentation of children in gifted and talented programs, did the math informally. I don't think it's hyperbole to say this. And that is that when I did calculations a few years ago, looking at data from the Office for Civil Rights, I looked at the percentages, for example, of Black and Hispanic and other students who were underrepresented in gifted programs. Every year, we have a little over a half million Black and Hispanic students who have not been identified as gifted, and they should have been identified. And many of them come from backgrounds like mine, like Malik Hinfield, but um, others, uh, they come from well-to-do backgrounds, but teachers are still not seeing, and school counselors are still not seeing those gifts and talents. So it is extremely troubling. And I call it a, not just a crisis, I call it a pandemic. What are we losing not identifying that talent? What innovations go unrealized? What great action has been left undone because some kid sitting in the back of his or her classroom flew under the radar and went undiscovered? And more importantly, 
How can those students be identified so that their talents never go to waste? That's a question that not only Donna Ford has spent her career asking, but also Malik Henfield. Because at some point, while cleaning offices at that nuclear power plant, a light bulb went off. Not in the offices, but in his head. There was no magical moment or anything like that. I just recall wanting something different. And there was one friend that I knew who went to college, and I just recall him telling me all of the fun he was having at this magical place called college. (laughs) And all the parties and living on your own, and all of that just appealed to me. So I asked him, what I would need to do to go to this college place. Henfield applied and got accepted into Francis Marion University, joined a fraternity, and earned his bachelor's degree in biology. But he wasn't exactly living up to his potential. Sometimes you go to class, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you do homework, sometimes you don't, that sort of thing. So I, I, I limped out of undergrad uh, with a 2.1 GPA or something like that. He moved in with his mom, who was in recovery. He slept on her couch until he got a job and didn't make a lot of money. Then his student loans came due. I didn't have it. I just wasn't making enough to have an apartment and uh, a child and it, it was just too much. It was overwhelming. And I remember talking to another fraternity brother in a school counseling program at the University of South Carolina. I remember him saying, if you go to grad school, you won't have to pay those loans back as long as you're in school. (laughs) To forestall the loans, he applied to the same program, got accepted, and met James L. Moore III, then an assistant professor at the University of South Carolina. Moore is now a professor of counselor education and vice provost for diversity inclusion and chief equity officer for Ohio State. I remember him really challenging me in a lot of ways. I'd miss class a lot because things would happen where I had to watch my son because the sitter couldn't watch him. By then, Henfield had full custody of his son. I was uh, working in the dean's office in the morning, and I was a bouncer at a club at night. So there just was a a lot of times when I was just tired, and I just wouldn't show up for class. But I would do the work, and do the work well. But Moore had high expectations. And one day he told me why he was late to class. It really spoke to the resilience uh, that he brought to the classroom. And it was a late class. And so um, I would always say to him, hey, man, man, you got a lot of potential, you know, uh, but you need to start coming to my class on time. <laughs> and I remember him having a conversation with me about not being able to give me an A. He's like, look, you're doing A work, but you're not showing up to class. I can't give you an A in this class. Um And that conversation stuck with me, and I can't really put my finger on it aside from the fact that it was a conversation with a professor outside of class, and I don't recall having that many of those, besides the fact that he's obviously a Black man. After working as a school counselor in South Carolina, raising his son himself because the boy's mother was in grad school, 
he looked up James Moore, who by then was at Ohio State. Well, I was more than surprised. I was elated, and I'm still elated. He belonged, <laughs> he has a story, and um, I knew that he could produce his own Picasso <laughs> if he allowed himself and he put the time in. And if he remained curious, he'll be able to answer the questions that he's been probably asking himself from a very early age when he grew up in New York and when he talks about his life with his mother or even when he moved to South Carolina when he was in the rural South. I think our imagination <laughs> uh, tell us what oftentimes can be possible for us. But our nightmares tell us we can't do it. Henfield applied and was accepted into the counselor education doctoral program. So I packed up the U-Haul truck and my son and I drove from Columbia, South Carolina to Columbus, Ohio. At Ohio State, James Moore did not give his new advisee much slack. I try to do the best I can uh, to create a, a disruptive transformation in how people sometimes think or, or how they interact. So. Uh, yeah, I was hard on him, and I'm I'm keenly aware of it. So there were projects that he assigned me to that were very last minute, some of them, and it was just on me to get it done. You told me before he was really tough on you at times. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he was extremely uh, tough on me, and he knew it. Um, his expectations of me were through the roof. But I, I, I do feel like I'm better for it because he never demeaned me. He never talked down to me. He just always made it clear that I could do more, that I could, I could do better than what I was doing. Um, and I, I, I took that challenge seriously and I upped my game. You represent the best of what I have to offer. He's a better me. And if he's not a better me, then I didn't do my job. That's what I've tried to do, with, not just with Malik, but I've tried to do that with every student that I have come in contact with. I don't want them uh, to be just as good as me. I want them to be better than me um, because that's what we call progress. Henfield was the only black male student in the program. He struggled with imposter syndrome and felt that his white counterparts were smarter than he was because they used bigger words. I recall writing my first published piece about my experience of being anxious to raise my hand and answer questions and participate in classroom discussions because I didn't feel as though I really knew what I was talking about or that it would be perceived as an intelligent answer. Moore sent him to Donna Ford, then well on her way to becoming the most renowned scholar of racial disparities in gifted education. The two had a few things in common. And I walked into her office. I'll never forget, I'd, I'd, I'd never seen a professor like her. She had blonde streaks in her hair. And I, for some reason, I recall a cherry tattoo on her ankle or something like that. I just... A cherry? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it was, <laughs> I just had never seen, and you got to think, I, at that point in time in my life, I had fraternity brands on my 
arm and chest and leg and piercing. In a lot of ways, I just never felt like I would ever fit into academia. The visual representation of her as a professor meant as much as anything she'd ever written or researched to me. Looking at her, I felt like I could belong in this club. You could be yourself, right? Exactly. So seeing her, just this comfort with being different and still being excellent, that is what stood out to me because no one can take anything away from Donna Ford. She is excellent in any and everything that she does. And for her to be comfortable enough to be herself, her true authentic self, that meant so much. The two got to talking about Henfield's past and about Ford's. She told him about her research around gifted education and how some kids were being left behind. He knew the story well. And it just all came together and solidified my thoughts around focusing on not just kids who are formally identified as gifted, but those kids who have the potential to be identified as gifted. And for one reason or another, they just were not. I've always been interested in kids like myself, kids who have the potential to be successful. And for one reason or another, some find success and some don't. And why? That's always been a passion area for me. I owe a lot of that passion to my experience with Donna Ford. Malik Henfield became a professor and a researcher, overseeing several National Science Foundation grants, unraveling why some kids of color are overlooked for gifted education. We're still using standardized tests as a gatekeeper that's keeping some students out and others who are getting in by virtue of their backgrounds, as opposed to the talents that they have and can and are able to display. School counselors are sometimes overburdened with 1,000 or even 2,000 students. Some schools have no counselors at all. When you have policies in place that increase workloads, it's very difficult to build relationships with students throughout the school and where you're able to act as that person who can uh, intervene in situations and identify those students who need more than some classrooms can provide. You're just not building those relationships with families and other teachers in your school because you're so overworked. We need to have families who are involved at school um, and even more importantly, at home in the lives of their children. Donna Ford. Making sure that we talk to our children about not just self-esteem and self-concept and identity, but having racial pride, having academic pride and self-concept, having an attitude of efficacy and agency. I can do this. I will do this. I want to be successful. We need education professionals who are anti-racist, who are culturally competent. So that means they have the knowledge, skills, and dispositions to be effective 
with uh, people who come from backgrounds unlike theirs by race, gender, and uh, economics. When we have teachers, we have counselors, when we have psychologists, when we have the school nurses, the janitors, I mean, everyone on board setting a climate of high expectations and positive regard for different cultures, then we can flip the narrative for students in such situations like uh, Malik was. And if they find just one person in the community, in, in their family, at school, that person can change their lives. When these two groups, meaning families and educators, home and school, when we are working together, children can be invincible. So we're failing our black and brown students who are woefully underrepresented and gifted and talented programs all over the country in many ways. But the fact of the matter, when you take a step back and think about it as a whole, we really shouldn't have to have a gifted and talented program. It really shouldn't have to exist. Every child deserves a rigorous academic program, and there's no excuse why they're not getting it in a country as rich in resources as the United States. A teenager who graduated with a 1.7 GPA and grew up with the trauma of drug use in his home now runs an institute of racial equity at a top university and is affecting policy for kids like the boy he was. What does Malik Henfield's story teach us? The great minds come from every zip code. James Moore. I think it speaks to the power of relationships. I think it, it speaks to the importance of time, right? You'll never be able to see that genius and the capabilities that students like Malik bring to bear if you don't sit still and spend the time with the person. And you can go into almost any vulnerable community. You can find so many people who are not realizing the dreams that they had outlined for themselves at a very early age. And it's sad. But in that sadness, that's what motivates me. That's why I work at Ohio State. It has so much potential to scale dreams and aspirations to be at the tipping point for people to live out their lives. We have many students like myself who are going throughout their entire educational experiences thinking that no one cares for them. And then we're surprised by the outcome. So for us, I just think that we need to think about what it means to actually demonstrate love and care for each and every one of our students. And in many ways, that's what my grandmother showed me. And that's also what James Moore showed me. Although we may not necessarily characterize it as love, I do. Mm -hmm.